So, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15 today, we're going to talk about what matters to God. We're going to be continuing in our Created for Significance series and focusing on that today. So, what matters to God? Have you ever asked yourself this question before you pray about something? How can I ask, how can I get God or pray in such a way that He's going to answer this prayer in a way that I think is the right way? In other words, how can I get God to bend to my will? And we might not think that all the way out like that, but we kind of think that in the back of our head is, is how can I get God to do what I think needs to happen? How can I get God to move in a way that, that benefits me? And you, there's books written about this. You look at Christian self-help or Christian sections and bookstores, you'll see all kinds of, of books about how to get God to move in, in the direction you want him to do. And I guess it's just human nature to think that we're the ones that have the right answer or the right solution to every problem. But have we ever asked ourselves instead, especially when we're praying about a situation or a problem that we're having, what is important to God in this situation? How could he be honored in, in whatever I'm going through right now. And I think much of the struggle that we have in our lives and in our relationship with God comes from asking the wrong questions or praying with the wrong motive. And this morning we're going to continue our Creative for Significance series and asking the question, what really matters to God? So we're going to start off by reading our primary scripture that we're going to be studying today in Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were gathered around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me! I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be no more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the hard teachings of Jesus. Father God, let your word do its job this morning to penetrate to the dividing of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. Let it judge the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. And let this be just a, a quick checkup to make sure that our hearts are pointed in the right way, Father. Lord God, we thank you and we ask this in your name. Amen. So we started off this morning with a question. What is really important to God? And when it comes to 
when it comes to a big decision, if you're if you're struggling over if you're gonna if you have to make a decision, you're struggling. Do I go left? Do I go right? Do I go straight? Where do I go? And when it comes to a big decision, is that the first question you ask? And probably not. Humanity isn't quite wired that way. And we don't, most of us don't even think to ask that at all, much that, less than that being the first consideration that we think of. But perhaps we should. Perhaps we should. I mean, after all, the Lord's Prayer is our model prayer. Is our model prayer. Most of us pray according to that. And what does the Lord's Prayer say? It says, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So let's talk today about what really matters to God. When you study the Bible, when you read all the stories in it, all the history, all the teachings and all that, you'll discover that God is on an all-in-all-out all all search for two kinds of people. Now, God is not out searching for something like some people shop, just kind of like meandering through the aisles, kind of look, seeing what looks good or anything, you know, it's... It's kind of how Tammy shops, you know, she, kind of, she likes walking down, up and down all the aisles. And, you know, that's a good thing, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more of a typical man going grocery shopping. You know, when men go shopping, we're on a mission, right? We kind of think like we're a special forces team. We have a list of targets. We're going to find those targets. We're Yep, we're going to get the biggest one we can find. We're going to execute retrieving those targets with extreme prejudice. And then we're going to exfil that location at the earliest convenience with our captives and bring them home for interrogation. In other words, eat the potato chips we just bought. (laughs) That's not how God is searching, though. God is searching for two kinds of people, and it's my hope that in the next half hour you're going to be able to diagnose the category you're in right now and the category you're going to want to be in. And the first category of people that God is searching for is what he calls the fully committed. We're going to go back into the Bible a little bit, into its history. In 2 Chronicles chapter 14, there's a king in Israel named Asa. Asa is coming under attack from his neighbor from the north. Now historically, Asa has not been a military genius. He, he isn't a George Patton. He's not a Norman Schwarzkopf. He's not a, a MacArthur. He's not one of these great military people. He's the kind of guy that says, all I'm going to do is I'm going to bring my army into the field. I'm going to put them where I think they need to go. And hopefully God will do what God does and rout the enemy before me. And you know what? Because he gave all the glory to God because he trusted in the Lord. That's exactly what happened. All the time. Even when they were attacked from a vastly superior force from Ethiopia, God came through and wiped out a million-person army. You can read about that in Second Chronicles 14. It says that once an Ethiopian named Zerah attacked Judah with an army of a million men and 300 chariots. They advanced to the city of Merashah, so Esau deployed his armies for battle in the valley north of Merashah. Then Asa cried out to the Lord his God, O Lord, no one but you can help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, O Lord our God. 
for we trust in you alone. It is in your name that we have come against this vast horde, O Lord. You are our God. Do not let mere men prevail against you. That's what Asa prayed, and here's what happened. In verse 12, So the Lord defeated the Ethiopians in the presence of Asa and the army of Judah, and the enemy fled. That's kind of the background for what we're talking about when we're being totally committed. Asa wins as long as he lets God do the fighting, and he's totally committed in his relationship with God. But several years later, a couple decades, Asa's a little older, well-established, got used to sitting on that throne. He's comfortable living in a palace, ruling during a peacetime. So when this king from the north attacks him, Asa's reluctant to go into battle. We really don't know why. Maybe he's just comfortable. Maybe he just doesn't want to be bothered. Maybe he's, his faith has gone down a little bit. Maybe he feels, I have more to lose now than I was when I was just a young king starting out. So instead of going to battle, he takes money out of the temple treasury and uses it to pay the king of Syria to attack his rival to his eastern flank. And that way, Asa doesn't have to risk anything. He just pays somebody off to do it and pays somebody with the church money to do it. Asa lets someone else do his fighting for him. He loses faith and trust in God and his commitment just kind of flew out the window. But you know, God was watching. God knows all about this hostile king on Asa's northern border. And God is so disappointed when Asa takes a comfortable way out. So God sends a prophet to Asa who tells him in 2 Chronicles 16, 7, Hananiah the seer or prophet came to King Asa and told him, because you have put your faith in the king of Syria instead of in the Lord your God, you missed your chance. Don't you remember what happened to the Ethiopians and their vast army? At that time you relied on the Lord and he handed them all over to you? Now look at verse 9. 2 Chronicles 16, 9. And the eyes of the Lord searched the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. What a fool you have been. You see what happened here? God wasn't ignorant. He, wasn't fall, he didn't fall asleep. He didn't, he didn't like have his eyes somewhere else and not realize what was going on in Israel and to Asa. And this is a chance for Asa to do good, to express his faith, and to be totally committed and prove it not only to his nation, but to the entire world that there is a God in Israel who will protect them. And I can almost hear God saying, Oh, Asa, I've been searching for someone who I could use, someone who would trust me and be committed to saving my people from their enemy and proclaim my name throughout the entire earth. That's why God is on an all-out search for two kinds of people. And the first kind is this kind, fully committed people. Is that you? The 
second kind of people that God is searching for is the kind of people that we read about in Luke 15 a few minutes ago. We saw what kind of people God is looking for, and now we, Luke 15 explains why God is searching for fully committed people. Luke 15 is, the story, is a record of Jesus telling three stories or parables in rapid succession. The stories of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the wayward or prodigal son. When you read Jesus' parables, you discover that normally when he tells a, sto- a parable, he tells a story and then goes on to explain what it means before he tells that other parable. But in Luke 15, Jesus doesn't pause. He doesn't stop to explain. He just launches right into the next parable and then the next. And you have to ask yourself, well, well why did he do that in this particular case? Why didn't he stop and, and explain and, and, and use um, this as a teaching moment? Well, you have to understand that in the introduction, you have to see the people that he is speaking to. In Luke 15, verse 1 through 5, it says, Now tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But, here's the audience that he's really speaking to here. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? In our translation of the Bible, the one I just read, it's the NIV. But when you really look at the way the the sentence is structured, Jesus was saying, suppose one of you. Literally, this should be translated, which of you being a shepherd? Jesus I think was very exacting in what he said. He didn't let a single word go to waste. He meant exactly what he said. So when he was talking to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, he knows that these people think as shepherds as second-class citizens. So he chooses to tell a story about a shepherd just to get their attention, just to kind of poke at them a little bit and see if they're listening. So he asked them a question about something they would never do. When he says, which of you being a shepherd, immediately all of them knew the answer. Well, none of us would even consider doing shepherd's work. I mean, I'm better than they are. I mean, if we had sheep, I'd, have, I'd hire somebody else to watch that for them. I'm not having anything to do with being a farmer, being a shepherd, anything like that. I'm above that. I shouldn't have to do that at all. And while they're all there thinking about what a despicable trade sheep herding is, he tells them about a shepherd who loves sheep. The second shock to them comes when this shepherd is saddled with the responsibility of actually losing a sheep. Verse 4 says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Jesus specifically says here, the shepherd loses one of them. Now in that, in that culture, normally that would be kind of a, a write-off. You know, you're, you're not going to leave the entire flock to, to go after one sheep. And that's what made this, this story so impactful to the people he's talking about. Because even if they, they thought sheep herding was, was disgusting or anything, they still knew all about it because they grew up with it. 
They knew everything about it. So you know that a shepherd is not going to leave a flock of 100 to find one. And that's what makes this so impactful to these people because there's, they're, they're, it, all this is spinning in their minds. So, a series of questions. How many sheep does a shepherd have? 100. 99 minus the one that went. What happens to them? One wanders off and one gets lost. He leaves the 99 in the open field to go after the one sheep. He doesn't bring them back to the city. He doesn't put them into a safety of a corral. He doesn't call another shepherd to watch over them. He leaves them all in potential danger to go and find the one that's lost. And when he finds a sheep, what does he do? Does he just take his rod and, and beat it all the way back to the flock? No. He picks it up, puts it around his shoulders, holds its feet together. I guess sheep aren't strong enough to kick out once you have their feet together. And he just carries it back to the flock to make sure it's going to be safe. And then what does he say to his friends? Rejoice with me. Why does he say that? I mean, wouldn't you be a little put out if you're a shepherd and you had to go find a sheep that wandered off? No, he does this because he's happy. He's so happy that he found this one sheep, he throws a party to celebrate. Luke 15 has three stories just like this one. The first one was that of a shepherd and the wayward sheep. He finds a sheep and calls his friends to come to a party to celebrate. The second one was a woman who lost a coin. And he has so much joy in, or she has so much joy in finding the coin that she throws a party celebrating to finding that one coin. The third parable, one we'll explore more in depth next week. It's a story of the prodigal son. It speaks of a son leaving home after taking part of his inheritance, blowing all the money on wild living, and then coming home in rags, only to find the father he had embarrassed in front of the entire community, lifting up his, his robes and running out to meet him and celebrating and throwing this huge party to celebrate him coming home. And as a reminder, none of the people in these stories would be a person that these deeply religious people that Jesus is talking to would ever want to identify with. He's got two audiences. The deeply religious people who thought they had it all together and the tax collectors and sinners that were also there, that were really understanding what he was saying, but it was lost on the religious people. You see, in each of these stories, the plot line involves something lost. A sheep is lost, a coin is lost, a son has wandered away from home. In your personal Bible time this week, I would challenge you, look at these stories. You might find something useful to point to in these chapters. Look through them, underline the words lost, loses, and lost, to see how many times each word is repeated in its various forms. In each of these stories, what is lost really matters to the hero of the story. The shepherd is so concerned about the loss of one sheep, he risks the other 99 to find him. A woman is so distraught over the loss of one coin that she cancels all of her 
plans and scours the entire house looking for it. A father is so brokenhearted that his son has wandered off that he endures the scorn of the entire village by running to him when he finally heads for home. In each case, what is lost matters so much to the one who lost it that it warrants an all-out search. In each of these stories, what was lost is found. And the hero is so happy that he or she throws a party to express their joy. In each of these stories, the hero is someone who really wouldn't be admired by those who consider themselves religious. After all, the first hero is a shepherd, a second-class citizen. The second person is a woman, in Bible times, third-class citizen. The third is a father who had a disobedient son. Again, would be considered to be less than perfect in that society. The father is maybe an admirable figure until he does the unthinkable and, and humiliates himself by literally raising the hem of his garment to run out and save his son from humiliation and, say, and shame. No deeply religious Pharisee would ever admire a man like that. So if we put these four things together, what do we have? You have Jesus standing in front of a group of long-standing religious types who figured out that what really matters to God, who think they figured out what really matters to God. After all, they've read the same scriptures we've read today. They've read 2 Chronicles 16.9 about how God is looking all over the earth for those who are deeply committed to him. They probably would have memorized that scripture by the time they were 10 years old. They see themselves as the fully committed. So in their best and honest thinking, they think that they and only they matter to God. So when they see Jesus talking with the outcasts of society, they're angered. They're disappointed. They, they don't know what to do with this. Because after all, he's a rabbi. A rabbi should not be hanging out with the, the refuse of society. He's diminishing God's name and dignity by associating with such low-life people. That's why Jesus gives them these three parables in rapid fire in an attempt to show them their religious pride. He said, I'm going to rapid fire truth into your souls so that you can never again wonder what matters to God. And what he's saying to them is that there's two kinds of people that God longs for and searches for. The first one we've already discussed, the fully committed. The second one that we see in these stories is that which was lost. To clarify, the fully committed are not proud religious types who think they're the most important thing to God. The committed ones who are those who understand that apart from faith in Jesus Christ, they are doomed the same as the lost. Jesus is really saying two things in this parable. First, lost people 
matter to God so much that he's on an all-out search for them. After all, every time a lost person is found, the Bible says that all of heaven rejoices with the hero of heaven, who is Jesus. And secondly, the committed are those who understand the Father's heart for the lost and rejoice with God when he finds and restores that which was lost. So much so that they join on this all-out search as well. Can you see why God says in 2 Chronicles, my eyes are searching the earth to find every person who is fully committed to me? It's because God loves those who have wandered from his fatherhood so much that he's enlisting all of his other children um, to go out and find these people with him and to join the search. When we talk about being committed to God, it means that only the fully committed reach out to the lost. Only the fully committed are willing to serve the long hours at the church so that it's a place where lost can get found. Only the fully committed pray diligently for their friends, their neighbors, their associates, and pray that, that God will draw them into the kingdom because they know that if they don't come into the kingdom, they will spend a Christless eternity in this awful place called hell. Only the fully committed alter their spending habits so that they can give and fund ministries that reach lost people. Only the fully committed will stay up late praying, thinking, strategizing, dreaming of ways to reach out to their lost friends and neighbors. Only the fully committed look out of eyes that see as God does sees everyone as a potential child of God, thinking first about others and then second about themselves. Finally, I'll end with this. Church family, I believe there's two categories of Christians in the world today, the casual and the committed. So as we sit here under the power of God and his word, which category are you in? And which category will you want to be in? A very dear woman from my previous church, she was very instrumental in founding the church. She used to pray this every Sunday morning with a pre-service prayer during the church's formative years when they were still meeting in a school. She would just cry out, God, I don't ask much of you today. I just ask that you give me your heart for lost people. That's a prayer. If you ever want to move the heart of God, if you ever want to bring a tear to the eyes of God, pray that prayer. So I'm going to ask you, as a church family, to pray that prayer every day between now and the end of this series. To all those listening on the internet, I know everyone here has accepted Christ that's in the church, but those who listen by internet, have you surrendered yourself to Jesus Christ yet? If you were to stand before God today, 
and he asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? If your answer is anything other than I have accepted Christ as my Savior, you're doomed. The Bible says that he was who was without sin became sin for us so that we can have the righteousness of God. Surrender your hearts to Christ. God is searching for you. God is drawing you. And God wants you to come into his family. All you have to do is make that first step toward him. Say, I need you, Jesus. Let him do the rest. We're going to close with communion today.